Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Welcome to part two of our little chat about Elizabeth I. So far in our story, we have gotten Elizabeth through her childhood, ascended out to the throne. We've talked a little bit about the game of Tudor suitors and all the men that she could have married and didn't, about the religious and economic climate of that she came into as queen and that she was developing during her reign. And now we are going to move on to just a touch of foreign policy, specifically Elizabeth's relationship with two foreign rulers that changed her reputation and the direction of the country. First up, Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, before you start writing us and telling us that she would make a great episode, you're right, she would. And we'll cover her in another episode. We're going to give you the bullet points of her life and then fill in the blanks later. Do not, no matter what you do, go and watch the CW show Rain and think that you're getting an education Mary Queen of Scots because you are not. There's a teeny, itty, tiny, teeny part that's the truth, but most of the show, from the costuming to even the characters in the show, are entirely fictional. As a work of fiction, it might be your thing. As a work of fact, it is, don't even think it's fact. That's all I want to say about that. <laughs> not even remotely authentic. I've not seen it, so um, we'll have to rely on Susan. Now, see, there's inauthentic, and then there's inauthentic. There's the tutors. We know there's some inaccuracies. We also know that they are changing how people appear to make us feel in modern day the way that the people in that time felt about them. Right. I can understand that kind of, right. there's narrative economy and there's dramatic things that need to change. Right. Fair enough. But from what I hear and from what Susan said, <laughs> rain is just a train wreck. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's good if you are in their demographic and you want to watch, a, you know, very attractive people doing things with each other and bosoms and whatever. So Susan says 10 points for bosoms. If that's enough for you, please feel free. So back to Elizabeth, the real story. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Elizabeth is going to have no heirs of her body. We know this. She knows this. So how is England going to ensure the succession? Now, according to Henry VIII's will, the next person after Elizabeth is his great niece, Jane Grey. Well, she's out of the picture, as she has no head. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's really funny. <laughs> well... Uh, if you have listened to the Jane Grey podcast, you'll know why she has no head, but suffice to say... Spoiler! <laughs> yes, she's out of the picture. Her younger sister, Catherine, at one point, Catherine was going to be, quote, adopted by Elizabeth. She may have had the fast track, but she had to go and fall in love or something, and then worse yet, she had a son. So to Elizabeth, that meant, okay, now you're the focus for people to depose me, and mm -hmm. now you have to go to prison, and your husband's going to go to prison, too. How about that? A friendly jailer let them hang out together, husband and wife, and then Catherine produced a second son, and all bets were off. <laughs> um, incidentally, can I please tell you that the descendant of one of those sons is the queen mother, mother of Elizabeth II? So, man born secretly in prison... Gets his revenge hundreds of years later. Took a long time. <laughs> but Catherine was imprisoned until her death. That's the end of that story. And younger yet, sister Mary did the same thing. Married without permission because people do not learn. How hard is it? Like the survivor people. You know you're going on the show. Learn to make fire. Do and it. it. Yeah. 
I, I don't understand. So, you know, she went under house arrest, too. For some reason, she was forgiven. She did die young, though. Uh, there's no happy ending there. So there's no shades of gray. <laughs> Except for ghosts. Yes. Oh. oh. Shakespearean shades. See what Ooh. I did there? You know who a lot of the world thought should have been queen instead of Elizabeth? Elizabeth's father had two sisters, after all, and he passed the older one over in his will. But according to all the laws of primogeniture, the descendants of the elder line ought to have been the next king or queen. So this boiled down to Mary, queen of Scots, rival Scotland, who used to be the bane of Henry VIII's existence with its border scuffles. Scotland's constantly the little brother across the seat poking. Boop! Stop touching me! Boop! Stop touching me! Stay on your side! So I would call this the first major foreign policy crisis after France. We know. We know France is just going to be pain in our A the whole time. So this is an individual foreign policy (laughs) crisis. This is kind of personal, too. I mean, they were cousins. Yes. We have not yet covered Mary, Queen of Scots. So here's a quick overview. Just so you can understand what what Elizabeth is dealing with. Mary's father, the King of Scots, died when she was a week old. Now, she was really unfit to rule. She was fit to drool. Aww. Aww. Wait a minute. So girls drool and they rule. Drool. Ow! High five. So, baby Mary became the queen, um, but there's obviously a regent in place. She was sent to live in France to live with her promised future husband, the Dauphin of France. And the same year that Elizabeth became queen of England, Mary was old enough to marry her husband. She married the Dauphin of France, and she and her husband started to call themselves the King and Queen of England. That's pretty serious, encouraged by the French king, based on the purported illegitimacy of Elizabeth. That is saber-rattling, my friends. Big time. (laughs) So not only that, Elizabeth was upset personally by comparisons with Mary. She was more beautiful, said everyone. Mm -hmm. She's over six feet tall. Golly, she must have seemed like a giant. No kidding. Really untroubled rise to the top. So I'm the queen. I'm six days old. I'm going to marry rich. I've got France. Here's my silver spoon. Stick it in my mouth. I know. Meanwhile, Elizabeth has been literally struggling. Struggling and fighting. In doubt her whole life. Mm Mm-hmm. But she's also been learning. Yeah, that's the thing. And it's making her a little bit more in a stronger position to deal with Mary. Well, because the thing about being handed things is you have no skills. No. Mary proves her lack of skills. But now she's a rallying point for Catholic extremists, as in, you know, backed by France, and Mary's husband became king of France when his papa died with a wife with a strong claim to England. Hmm. It looked very grim. Yeah. Until suddenly, Mary's husband died of an ear infection that went into his brain. Here is where we note that a Z-pack from the CVS could have changed the course of history. An ear infection. So Mary had to come back to Scotland, a place she had not set foot in since she was five. Also, have you watched the Kate Blanchett movie, Elizabeth? Mary, Queen of Scots, has a Scottish accent, which has always bothered me, because what the hell is she doing with the Scottish accent? That's what I want to know. Yeah. She's She's been in in France. France. Her whole life, yes. I know. You know, I'm just saying. In her absence, Scotland has converted to Protestantism, and so Mary's Catholic entourage and platform 
It's not exactly welcome. And she proceeds to make a series of bad decisions. It's like a soap opera. So let's summarize so we can get back to Elizabeth. Okay. She stirred up a rebellion of nobles in England, in the north of Elizabeth's country. Elizabeth knows your fingers in that pie, Miss Mary. Quite she contrary. She sees you. Do the hand gesture. Eyes. <laughs> point. Eyes. Point. She's looking at you. It doesn't look good. So then she married and then blew up a petulant psycho. Then married his murderer within a few months and lost her street cred. Luckily, she had a little baby boy, which is the only uptick in this. And you need to pin that fact, because little baby boy James comes in later. Into Elizabeth's story. Absolutely. So she had to flee to England, where Elizabeth, quote, hosted or maybe held her for 19 years. Yeah, Elizabeth could easily see, despite Mary saying, oh, no, I'm not going to do anything. Elizabeth could probably see a dozen ways that Mary could get on the throne. Mary could just not live in peace and harmony. I do not understand why people can't stand a contented life, get a hobby, grow some orchids, or some dang thing, just some (laughs) hobby. Because three more times, three more times, Mary got mixed up in a plot to take over England. So Elizabeth was so reluctant to punish an anointed queen, because that might give people the idea that all queens can be punished, which she didn't want to revenge on herself, Mm -hmm. that can you just let this roll on? You know, the last one involved a direct threat to Elizabeth's life. So at last, at long last, Elizabeth reluctantly gave the order to execute Mary. In short order. A few things about the execution recorded by Robert Winkfield, who was in the room. It took three strokes of the axe. I can't imagine that. He said that, quote, the head moved its lips for a quarter of an hour after it had been severed from the body. Ew. There was a dog of hers underneath the skirt, so when her head was finally chopped off, the dress was still moving because it was the dog. I I know. And then he came out and laid between her shoulders and her head. It's, oh. Anne Boleyn's chop seems very nice. Very humane, comparatively. And you know what's interesting? They took everything, including the dog, which was covered with blood, and washed it immediately. They did not allow anyone to take any blood, because, you know, you could put your handkerchief in as a souvenir, Mm -hmm. or like a, I remember you, Mary. Nope. Everything was washed. Dog was washed. Clothes were washed. The stage was taken apart and burnt. There were no mementos left, no rallying point of Mary at all. And thus, ends a thorn in the side of Elizabeth. It ends one thorn, but it kind of stirs up another injury that's going on with Spain. So let's talk about the famous Battle of the Spanish Armada. This is like the crowning glory of Elizabeth's military uh, powers. I mean, in history, this is the greatest sea victory of Britain. Yeah, it's Philip II, King of Spain, brother-in-law, Catholic, and former suitor, versus Elizabeth. The deal, again, is religion. Philip is Catholic, and he believes that for Rome, he needs England. He's been promised England in the past. It's been almost in his grasp, and it's gotten away. Now might be the time to promote Catholicism and take England by storm with this armada that he's developed. Also, there were a couple other factors. The Netherlands was trying to get out from under Philip, and Elizabeth had been helping them with money. It was a buffer. Honestly, it was keeping Spain from 
basing an attack out of there. You know, if you can keep them fighting, Philip can't amass an army there with which to launch to England. So it made political sense for her to back them. And just kind of keep it on the DL. Spies everywhere. You're not keeping it on the DL. to get to the Netherlands, you must go past England. So she's controlling the shipping channels for the, the for Spain to get up to the Netherlands. Well, and people, captains, pirates, as far as Spain was concerned, mm-hmm. like Sir Francis Drake, were harassing Philip's merchant ships coming back with booty from the New World. Uh, and the ambassadors <laughs> swore Elizabeth winked at it. Winked at it. She freaking wore crowns made out of it. <laughs> That's no wink. There's no That's wink. full-on acknowledgement. Um, I am, I am sorry to say, I must blow your mind a little bit here. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry to say that Elizabeth backed John Hawkins, who was the first English slave trader. She invested in his scheme. So that's um, that's a bummer and not a very cheerful thought, but merchants included human merchants, too. That said, tensions were high. Now, in preparation for this and as a response to how the saber-rattling was going over in Spain, England started to focus on its navy. And there was a very clever strategy in place to keep all those sailors and all those boats busy. It was compulsory for everyone, if you ate meat at all, which, of course, some of you didn't, but uh, you had to eat fish on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. And why the heck does that have anything to do with Spain? Well, to keep the Navy occupied, healthy, fit, in shape, practice that sailing, they occupied the rest of their time as fishermen. And in order to provide a market for all those fish, everyone had to eat fish. See, it all worked out. It's teamwork. Well done, England. Anyway, tensions were high, and the word was out that Philip was coming. Sir Francis Drake did a preemptive strike on the Spanish ships in the port of Cadiz, kind of like a proto-Pearl Harbor. He goes mm-hmm. in and wrecks almost 40 ships just ahead of time. Right. So, finally, a year later, so thanks, Sir Francis Drake, for the delay. That yeah. was good. Uh, so, finally, a year later, the Spanish set off 122 ships, 22 galleons, which is what you think of when you think of Spanish right. ships. You know, the pirate ship mm-hmm. looking things. Um, but the rest were either converted merchant ships or smaller fighting ships. Um, not all of them were galleons. This isn't one big stream of pirate ships coming at you. Now, there was a... Did you listen to the This American Life episode of Fiascos? <laughs> I did, but I don't remember anything but the squirrel cop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was cleaning my house and listening, and I was absolutely in hysterics with this particular episode. But... I hate to say this, but this entire operation was a fiasco. It started out with this good plan, but then one thing happened, then another thing happened, and then so much happened that it skipped from something bad is happening. There's no possible chance that it's going to come out well into fiasco land. So, Philip, his naval admiral, dies, and he puts a new, very good, militarily good admiral in charge who had never been to sea. But he knows battle, and actually the plan was to fight on land. The plan wasn't really to fight in the water. Yeah, they didn't really come prepared for a massive sea battle. Their point is they are going to go pick up some troops and ferry them across and drop them off. Right, on land. So this guy's nomination wasn't as crazy as it seems. In fact, he horfed the whole way. I think yeah, poor I know. Here come the Spanish. Any crescent formation up the English Channel toward London. 
And just like in Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, the beacons were lit. One to the next, to the next, big fires, big fires to warn. They're coming. They are coming. This nearly invincible crescent-shaped machine of doom. Crescent works really well because the big ships are going to protect the little ships and they're going to move as one giant mass. Mm-hmm. The problem occurs when the mass stops moving. Remember, they're military transport. Pick up troops on the east side, the Europe side, and ferry them over and lay waste to England. But there's no port there. There's no port there. And a guy in the administration said, you know there's no port there, right? Do you want me to build something? They're like, no time. We got to go. So here they are, flailing around, just floating, waiting for transport ships, little ones, to go get people and bring them slowly over. Kind of like on a cruise ship when you go to shore. The shore excursions. (laughs) So it was England's chance because the formation was broken and stopped. Because then you can infiltrate it. They sent out ships that were called Hellburners. These are boats that are loaded with flammables. And the whole point is to kind of set it on fire and point it towards the ship. The Spanish could see it coming, but there wasn't anything they could do to stop it. Well, and they're sitting here on ships full of gunpowder. Wooden ships full of gunpowder. That is a bit of a facer. So they tried to hide themselves out of the way. They scattered like chickens. While the Spanish had these big, bigger ships that you think of, the British had smaller, more maneuverable boats. So they could actually come up on one of these big ships and blast a hole in it. I mean, it was it's a fighting machine. It was a little bit more powerful. Well, and they had better guns, more long-range guns. Mm-hmm. More importantly, they had guns that were more easy to load. That's really critical when you need to load between all these shots, you know. Uh, everybody had kind of run out of ammunition there. Toward the end, right. they were loading chains and all kinds of, like, crap in there. But it didn't matter. They didn't really lose that many ships. No. Um, and you think it's going to be this big loss. Mm-mm. <laughs> so the, here they are. Um, they're going to have to hustle up north because the whole of the English Navy is below them, basically. So they had to go north, which is not the direction they'd come from. And, hey, did they have enough supplies for... All this endeavor. I will tell you, they had uh, 300 priests, but that's not going to help you unless you're going to eat them. Nope. They had ropes. They were eating ropes. By the end, yeah. Oh, the bad weather. Um, they just kept losing, losing ships. They just, and a lot of their food and especially their water, water. had been placed in new barrels. New barrels which spoilt all the water. You can't drink seawater. Holy crap, what are we going to do? They thought, hey, the Irish Catholics are going to help us. That's right. So they sent guys over when they got that far over, and oh, were they wrong. Because any man that set foot was beaten up and killed. Because, yeah, they were invaders. Uh, Don't give me this Irish Catholic thing. You're invading my land. So, while the Spanish are encountering some disappointments, <laughs> the fiasco is occurring on their big trip around the uh, the island there. Meanwhile, Elizabeth had arrived at the other side of the channel at Tilbury. The Duke of Parma had threatened to come on over. And so she walked among the troops, walked among them, tears in her eyes as they kneeled down. They literally could not believe she was there, you know. Someone had taken the precaution of getting her some armor, um, just in case anyone took it into their head to be, you know, crazy sauce or whatever on the eve of this battle. But she, she was very touched that all these men were amassed to die for their country and, you know, frankly, to die for her. So she gave them a speech. 
I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general, judge, and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I know already for your forwardness you have deserved rewards and crowns, and we do assure you, in the word of a prince, they shall be duly paid you. We shall shortly have a famous victory over those enemies of my God, of my kingdom, and of my people. So the movie Elizabeth, The Golden Age, with Kate Blanchett, gets this whole sequence wrong. But I can totally see why. Mm -hmm. Fire ships, cut to armored warrior queen, out to the typhoon, there's more fire. It definitely gets my vote for drama. No. Just know that there are quite a few liberties with this sequence, and it's out of order. But it's really dramatic. Well done. Yeah. Well the, done. the elements are there. They're just not they're in the right yeah. place. Yeah. But are we going to be tested on this information? We are not. So the Armada gets home. Uh, eventually. 50% down. They've lost 20,000 men. Um, the English lost no ships and only a hundred men. But I'm sorry to say that the English sailors did not get paid, despite the speech at Tilbury, most of them, uh, except, you know, bus fare home and everything, which is odd considering what she said in the I speech. Know. They never did have to fight, though. Maybe that's what she's like, oh, oh, well, since you didn't fight, I guess I'm not paying you. Maybe. Ugh, seems like a bummer. Uh, England lost 7,000 men out of that fleet to typhus and dysentery, which is less glorious, which is why they didn't go that way movie-wise, I no. think. That would be a very messy movie. And the largely forgotten Monty Python-like follow-up English Armada of 1589. What? There was a what? Yeah, exactly. What's the name of Michael Jackson's seventh album? We don't know. Same thing. <laughs> We don't know. It's called Invincible, ironically, just in case you want to know. So when sailors confiscated stores of wine cakes and got too drunk to fight, for example, what's the Monty Python music? We should be playing that over this thing. Oh, yeah. Put it in your head. Or when they got to walls and they didn't have any siege equipment. Oh, oh, we forgot. Or when they couldn't catch a break with the waves. Let's just forget about it. It would have been cool because you know what? Strike while the iron's hot. They're down. Let's wreck them. And a lot of people say that the Spanish Armada was what changed, and England became the boss of the seas, and Elizabeth, blah, blah, blah. But the fact is, they were fine afterward. They were fine for a long time afterward. It's the PR machine in place. There's a famous portrait of her called the Armada Portrait. She's dripping in pearls. Behind her is the wrecked Spanish Armada <laughs> on one side. And by her left hand, which is resting on a globe, which is curiously facing, the new world is facing out. It's like, see this turn of events? But the fact is, they were the bosses until quite a long time. And then after that, the Dutch took over. So England is a Johnny-come-lately <laughs> in the Navy business. So maybe we better leave this extensive foreign policy section and take a little break. And when we come back, a look at last at daily life during her reign and how England had changed. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 100,000 titles to choose from. For you, the listeners of the History Chicks, Audible is offering a free download so you can try out their service. To go along with this episode, we cannot recommend highly enough Elizabeth by the noted historian David Starkey. 
or What About the World of Downton Abbey by Jessica Fellows, narrated by none other than Elizabeth McGovern, Lady Grantham herself. To receive your free audiobook download today, please visit audible.com slash thehistorychicks, or simply follow the link on our website, thehistorychicks.com. And we're back. You will notice that in that last section, that foreign policy section, we didn't mention Ireland at all. And that is a famously bloody conflict. Also, technically a domestic one, so it should go in this section, as Henry VIII got hold of it officially at some point in his reign. Our friend Queen Elizabeth viewed the whole entire mess, both the country and the conflict, as, quote, an unwelcome inheritance. So... The fact is, she didn't really want to mess with it, didn't want to deal with it and all the problems, but they could not let it go because, you know, France and Spain could come over as Catholic countries and just set up shop nearby. That's really something they couldn't allow. Elizabeth's first minister there once famously wished the whole place at the bottom of the sea. So there's no glory here. There's no great things we can say about mismanagement or what did she know what did she make happen what did she allow to happen that really hasn't been gone into more thoroughly by by other people so when it comes to the whole ireland plus elizabeth subject we are going to make a lateral pass to professor stephen ellis um who has written an article for the bbc called turning ireland english we'll provide you the link in the show notes and also, he has a book, Ireland in the Age of the Tudors. Um, I got this out of the library, and it looks remarkably like a textbook, so you may not be able to buy it easily. It may be something that your library can order for you if you care to read it. So, um, yes, a lot of people died in Ireland. There was great misery, but in the out-of-sight, out-of-mind department, which, of course, you know, happens even now in this 24-hour news cycle environment. So we are going to simply acknowledge the existence of the ongoing conflict that's in the background the whole time Elizabeth is the ruler. It nominally ended with James the year Elizabeth died. And you know, pretty much still the remnants still exist. Um, So we are going to move on to more local home concerns. And um, we're just going to leave Ireland there at that. So on we go to happier subjects. We talk about the Elizabethan era, the golden age, but what exactly does that mean? There's so many parts that are part of, there's so many pieces to this puzzle of the Elizabethan era. There's theater, there's art, there's literature, there's science, there's big discoveries that are happening in the world because of things that she is doing. How is that possible? The main thing that Elizabeth did was calm the waters abroad and domestically enough so that things can flourish. When you give something fertile ground in which to grow and the seeds are already there, well, up springs all kinds of art, science, discovery. It's been said that Elizabethan times differ from medieval times by gunpowder, printing, and the compass. We've already talked about the gunpowder. Let's move on to printing. Here, for the first time, books started to be printed in English, including the Bible. And ordinary people could read because there was a great establishment of grammar schools for boys. Let's not get too excited. Just for boys. And so, at the beginning of Elizabeth's reign, one in ten men could read. But by the time Elizabeth left us, one in four could read. That's a huge jump in literacy. 
Those are great numbers. And Whoa. get this. Women went from 1% literate to 10% literate, which low, yes, but shocking increase in women who could read. And you know, cookbooks, self-help books, and religion topped the bestseller list, but the big bestseller, of course, was the Bible, which for the first time, the average Joe could take home and read at his leisure in his own language. And that cannot be overestimated. No, not at all. Elizabeth loved theater. She always had. She enjoyed watching plays. So now that the economics and the religious turmoil is calmed down, people can begin to explore that. Early on, there was a little bit of a class conflict when it came to theater. Although now we think of Elizabeth, theater, Shakespeare. But early on, it was something for the lower classes to attend. The middle classes were rather... Horrified by the goings-on. <laughs> they considered it vulgar, and they actually wanted to close down a lot of the theaters. And they had some, the mayor of London was on their side. Elizabeth's Privy Council, on her behalf, because she loved theater so much, kind of went in and smoothed things over and protected the theater and created an environment where the upper classes could enjoy theater as well as the lower classes could. It became kind of a thing to do. It became very fashionable to um, be a patron of a theater company, very fashionable, from the top down. In fact, one-third of all Shakespeare plays were performed the first time for a royal occasion. And we should note, Elizabeth did not traipse about and go to the public theater like it is shown in Shakespeare in Love. No. No es possible. No, she did. She liked to have the plays produced in the theater, and so they could, you know, polish them up and make them good for her and her guests to watch at the palaces. So, no, she didn't go and hang out at the Globe and watch Shakespeare from her box. But it's kind of an interesting image to imagine. And you know what? The the poets and the playwrights, which really are one and the same thing did respond to her patronage with great devotion. There is a quote from Midsummer Night's Dream that is definitely Queen Elizabeth. Let me quote it. I'm not going to have a Shakespearean accent, just to let you know. That very time I saw that thou couldst not, flying between the cold moon and the earth, Cupid, all armed, a certain aim he took at a fair vestal throned by the west and loosed his love shaft smartly from his bow, and it should pierce a hundred thousand hearts. Cool. If that's not Elizabeth, well, <laughs> I don't know who that could be. Edmund Spencer wrote a poem um, called The Fairy Queen, and it is about her, and he calls her Gloriana in that, and that name stuck, because it just, this poem encompassed all the, all the golden of her, and the warrior princess of her, and the leader of her. So that's why you hear a lot of times the name Gloriana associated with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth really liked that image, really liked it so much, in fact, that her portraits, over 130 of them, do reflect her intent to manage her image. She was a spin master, that's for sure. And um, anything that looked a little too old hmm, was burnt up. Well, let's get rid of that. Not, not good. No good. Can't she, delete it on your phone. We'll just no. put it in the fire. She was to remain steadfast and a permanent fixture. 
And in addition, many in her court would wear miniatures of Queen Elizabeth on their waist or on necklaces around their neck or in a pin. And if you were not rich enough to afford a painted miniature, there were stamped metal miniatures available in every marketplace for the casual buyer to slip in his pocket to um, kind of denote his adherence to Gloriana and his love for Gloriana. Can you imagine now? Who do you carry around? I don't know. We don't have anybody like her. Really. I've got nine jillion pictures of my son in my phone. I know. That's <laughs> that could be. I have a ginger daughter. There you go. <laughs> Has a little bit of Gloriana in her. Um, okay, so we've talked gunpowder. We've talked printing. What about that compass? So advances in scientific knowledge were due to the exploration of English sailors across the world, fueled by a treasure hunt, it must be said. <laughs> Um, John Hawkins, Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh, and their alike went off um, all over the place to discover new worlds, bring back treasure, etc. I know Sir Francis Drake at one point left with five ships, 200 men. Three years later, he came back with one ship and 56 men, but lots of treasure. <laughs> uh, I guess Expensive that's Expensive treasure. I don't really know. Privateers. As dashing as they were, were also very good map makers. And for the first time, you really started to get a really accurate representation of coastlines, mm -hmm. currents, etc. Um, in fact, on that expedition, when he came back with just one ship, he brought back two times the annual English revenue with him in his boat. Catching. Now, if you remember us talking about what created the battle with the Spanish Armada, now go across the ocean. Spain had already colonized parts of South and Central America. So the animosity between Spain and England and the battles were very deep and they went globally. It wasn't just little things, you know, it wasn't just little things like religion, which was a big thing. But um, because Elizabeth sponsored Sir Walter Raleigh, he was able then to later sponsor attempts to colonize territory that he named Virginia, after the Virgin Queen. I love this quote from the Kate Blanchett movie, which is just from the movie, mm -hmm. where she said, you're going to name it Virginia. What if I marry? Are you going to call it Contumacia? Which <laughs> makes me laugh. I'm just like... So all of, yous, all of yous, all of you in West Virginia, be grateful. <laughs> you could live in West Contumacia. Um, oh, and before you ask us, yes, you're going to write. I know you are. Yes, Pocahontas is on our list. Oh, <laughs> well, okay, yes. yes, the new world, plants came back. The potato, now who can imagine Ireland without a potato? But you know what? Until this period of time, ain't no potatoes in Ireland. Who could imagine Italy with no tomatoes? Okay, there's no tomatoes. There's none. And as a matter of fact, when tomatoes first came, they were dismissed. Oh, there's no nutritional value at all in a tomato. But they're very decorative on a plate, and so they were used as ornaments on a plate. Nobody wanted to eat those tomatoes. In fact, nobody really wanted to eat vegetables at all because that's what the poor folks did. They ate an onion and a piece of bread, and that was dinner. So you're not going to eat an onion if you are in the court. You're not going to do it. And most vegetables were kind of seen as... Mm, peasant food or pig food, which pretty much is the same thing. So you'd almost think the peasants, I had they had enough of it, yeah. would have eaten a more healthy diet. 
those going back to those supersizers again. We've talked about those other episodes. You know, the, the diet. I think must have been so constipated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, okay. There's no beans. There's no vegetables. Where are they getting their fiber? There was fruit, but it was considered to be hard on the digestion. A lot of dried fruit, like dates. Currants, mm-hmm. which they put in every freaking thing. So is my mom. I swear. Oh, yeah. When I was growing up, she said it was her secret ingredient. Well, raisins. <laughs> she put them in gawumki, which is stuffed cabbage. Oh. She put it in the sauce, which is just, I mean, cooked cabbage to me is pretty nasty anyway. So I just. <laughs> well, one thing that took hold was what they called physic gardens. Um, there was a thought that what got when God created an illness, somewhere in the world was the cure already growing. It was just a matter of figuring out what goes with what. Physic gardens, herbalists, and the whole science of botany really took off during this period. And you know, who had leisure time to really get into this was the wealthier ladies, who, in fact, you might consider going to instead of a doctor, because you know what? Mint really does settle your stomach. Blackberries really do cure constipation. I'm just saying, not all folk remedies are hokey. Some of them actually work. Now, I will tell you, doctors often recommended, quote, the powdered skull of a man killed in battle, unquote, as a cure for almost everything. So, take science in the Elizabethan era with a big grain of salt. Another plant... Not so healthy that came over from the New World was tobacco. The English people loved them some smoking. Matter of fact, a foreign ambassador wrote back, It makes them all riotous. And then it makes them fall asleep. What are they smoking? I don't know. So in addition to scientific knowledge and new plants, they the explorers brought back tastes for luxuries. That all of a sudden, people just couldn't get enough of luxuries like soap. (laughs) People did not bathe on a daily basis, monthly basis, yearly basis, the way they do now. My skin is itching just thinking about that. (laughs) The only water that was suitable for washing, frankly, was rainwater, because it's the only thing that hadn't been through the ringer, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Um, Gosh. So you used rainwater to wash your face. But you didn't want to put any part of your body in that rank, foul, animal crap infested, tannery, pollution littered stuff that purported as water that was running by you. So what you did was you got pieces of linen and you rubbed yourself down with it to get rid of the outer layer of filth and dirt. And then you made sure to wash your undergarments. So Thanks to godliness. I guess. And so I don't know about the reek. Oh my. People must have reeked. I don't know what to say. I would like for all of you to try just taking a dry washcloth out of your cabinet before your your shower and see how clean you feel after you've perhaps given yourself a rub down with a dry washcloth. No, thank you. So standards of um, scent must be low. Well, they also didn't have our, I mean, it's a different era. Now we are, are we're used to. Fastidiousness. Yes. Elizabeth was reputed to take a bath Every month, whether she needed it or not. Now, that's a little bit of a miscommunication because, you know, when you would immerse yourself fully in a bath is when it's full of herbs because you don't feel good. It's a medicine. So the fact that she took a bath whether she needed it or not, well, that was preventative medicine. Keeping her healthy. She lived for a long time for that particular era. (laughs) Another luxury that came back that was deleterious to one's health, if you were wealthy, was sugar. Sugar was so expensive 
that one cup of it cost as much as 50 laborers made in a year. Kazam! And Elizabeth loved sugar. She was very famous for not eating very much at meals. Maybe just a little pottage. I'll give you the recipe for that in the show notes. <laughs> uh, maybe just a little meat. But she ate sugar all freaking day. She was under the mistaken assumption that if she ate sugar, her breath would sweeten. But we know now that what it's actually doing is eating up her teeth. And by her upper 40s, her teeth were nigh on completely black, which created a new fashion for black teeth. So ladies of the court would blacken their teeth. Mm. Now, the average laborer who had to work for years to afford this much sugar were perfectly able to avoid tooth decay, um, mostly because they died before it ever came around. <laughs> but second of all, because they weren't shoving sugar down their heads. That's funny. <laughs> So gunpowder printing and the compass were three of the things that made the Elizabethan era golden. We have so much information about different aspects of daily life during the Elizabethan era that we are going to roll that information out in a little mini-cast. Separate from this one, um, but for now we're going to move on to the rest of Elizabeth's life and her legacy. The History Chicks is now on Pinterest. We have boards for almost every show. You can explore your favorite subject and maybe find some new favorites. Just go to Pinterest.com and search for The History Chicks. The History Chicks. That's all. And we are back. Towards the end of Elizabeth's reign, she wasn't as successful economically as she had been early at the beginning of it. A series of failed crops and its cousins' unemployment and food shortages played havoc on the economy. There were a few skirmishes of power, um, and that pesky line of succession was still nibbling at her. You know, who is going to take over? So after about 40 years on the throne, her health was failing. She was getting a little eccentric. At one point, I think she showed her entire bosom to a foreign dignitary. And I think she meant to. (laughs) This is the Elizabeth that's often spoofed in YouTube videos and horrible histories. Like, with a white face makeup, because she had smallpox. And she wore this heavy white makeup. And she's kind of crazy and really wild at this point in her life. And her advisors are scrambling. They are trying to figure out what is going to happen once she dies. Because... Death is going to happen to this woman at some point. She calls everyone together. Come, come, family. Okay, advisors and people that I care about and have been loyal to me. And she gives them a speech, which is now referred to as the Golden Speech. And basically what she did was tell them how grateful she had been to serve them and that whoever came next couldn't possibly love them anymore. She got rid of the eccentric, and she was her old self for this one speech. In 1603, she's 69, she's vaguely unwell and very low in spirits. She refused to see doctors and insisted on standing and walking around and not being taken to bed because her image was very important to her. And a helpless monarch in a bed didn't seem to fit her picture. Her ladies put cushions on the floor and just really tried to persuade her, Madam, 
some rest, please, you know, please. So eventually she did lay down on the cushions, and there she lay for four days. There is a very good painting that shows this scene by Paul Delaroche, and it was not painted till 1828. Of course, mm -hmm. it's a much, much later painting, but it really gives you the scene of what's going on and the dismay of everyone around her. Finally, she agreed to go to bed. Um, some quiet music was played to soothe her. The court grew very somber. There was still no successor. And now the record states that she, quote, made a sign to Robert Cecil that James of Scotland was to succeed her. That's quite a sign to make. I don't know how yeah. elaborate that sign was. Yeah, supposedly something with her hands around her head to signify a crown. Ah, very good. That, by the way, James of Scotland is Mary Queen of Scots' baby son. Unpin James from the Elizabeth Bulletin board. Well, now she'd yeah. been giving him advice, like mm -hmm. little friendly, sisterly advice the whole time. So he's not a complete like, oh wait, there's that one kid. She'd been grooming him just a touch. Right. And on March twenty fourth, sixteen o three, at Richmond Palace, a favorite palace of hers, Elizabeth I took her last breath. Now, what did she die of? There's speculation. Nobody knows for sure. Did she have pneumonia? Did she have strep? Again, she could have used your z -pack. Man. Did she have some type of organ failure? This one, I, this one is the one. If this was really what she died of, blood poisoning from that makeup that she was wearing. It was lead and vinegar makeup. And did she get lead, um, blood poisoning from that? Well, and also with such a poor diet, which we went into in the last segment, but in so much stress, maybe it was just old age. Yeah. Um, that's 69, having been on the throne for 44 years, that's a lot of toll on a person. Well, you see what happens to the presidents of the United States. Mm -hmm. They get gray. Oh, yeah. Obama looks very handsome. But man, doesn't he look older? All of them look oh, so yeah. much older. It takes a lot out of you, I think. Mm -hmm. Just the lack of sleep and the stress and just the constant being and on. eight years. She was on the throne for 44 years. Yeah. So she laid and stayed in Whitehall for a month. A month. Ew. That's all I'm saying. And then her funeral procession to Westminster, um, the whole street, lined, lined, lined with weeping people, most of whom had no, no other queen. I mean, really, the vast majority. Um, four black velvet-draped horses pulled her coffin, which was covered with a statue and effigy of her. And, this is a quote from an observer, there was such a general sighing, groaning, weeping, as has never been seen in the memory of man. Elizabeth was first buried with Grandpa, Henry VII, and then she was moved to the monument in Westminster Abbey by her successor, James. Uh, he built her a monument where she is now with her sister, Mary. Mm -hmm. But Elizabeth's statue's on the top, so I don't know how that makes Mary feel. So we'll post a picture of that surrounded by the spiky black fence. What did you love the most about Elizabeth? Hmm. I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's um, She had to fight the whole time and convince people the whole time, and she put on an act the whole time, and, like, where was the woman? Did the woman become the queen and the queen become the woman? Uh, at some point, did the things, did the image and the person mix? Was there ever a separate Elizabeth? That's what I'm interested to know. There's no, there's no way to know now. Right. And even if she was alive, you wouldn't, we wouldn't know. So I guess that's what I took from it. It's like the whole thing was an act from the moment she got up. Well, from the beginning of her life, it was about survival and doing what was best. And when she was put in the position of power, 
to do what was best for the country that she loved, she was able to flourish. I, I think it's really interesting that she was such a rainbow personality. She was lonely and she was vain and she was outgoing and she was witting. She was caring. She was dramatic. She was intelligent. She was cunning. She was so many adjectives all bottled up in one person. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting, like, certain things would just set her the heck off. Mm -hmm. Like, God forbid, you got married. That would just... Ah! <laughs> Why are the other of you going to prison unless you are very good at talking quickly? <laughs> yeah, she's... Yeah, so she's a contradiction. She's... It's just... Um, and it's funny how every era since has kind of taken different aspects of her personality and, and used it to write her biographies. Mm-hmm. Like, is she a tyrant? Is she a wicked queen? Is she all that is womanly and motherly? Is she a cunning strategist? You know, mm -hmm. it just depends on what biography you read and when it was written. Queen Elizabeth and her father are the most famous monarchs England ever had, really. I'm thinking um, her reign is looked back upon from this perspective as a golden age, a time of harmony, a time of brilliance. And it might be nostalgia, like for the 1950s. I mean, there were issues. There were a lot of issues. Poverty was very bad. The average life of an average person was not so awesome. No. But Elizabeth did establish a church that still stands today. She did, you know. It's impossible now, I guess, to disentangle the threads of history and the threads of storytelling from the actual story of Elizabeth. Because so every era has added a little mm -hmm. mythology, and now it's hard to take any of it away. Oh, good point. So now we are on to media. Oh, so much. I mean, just go, we'll, we'll talk about books in a minute, a little bit. But first off, museums. I mean, you can go to England and visit so many places where Elizabeth was. I thought that Hatfield House would be a great place to start. It is open to the public, and there is an oak tree where Elizabeth reportedly first heard about her secession to the throne. It's like a little, it's a big spot there. But you can have your wedding there, your corporate party. I mean, <laughs> it's open. Um, also, Hampton Court Palace is open for tours. There's an awful lot of veggies on all these menus. I'm just saying. <laughs> we talked about in the last segment how veggies weren't so kosh for the upper classes. But whatever. You can have pottage. So take heart on that. I recommend that you eat the passion fruit syllabub at the Fountain Courts. Ooh, syllabub. So go ahead and yeah. do that. I'm not sure how appropriate passion fruit is for the period, but, you know. Whatever. Eh. That's okay. You're in the right setting. Eat whatever you want. Speaking of not exactly like it was, um, Shakespeare's Globe is open. The original was destroyed in the mid-1600s, but... Um, modern reconstruction has put it about where it was, and there's plays and all kinds of things going on. And even if you can't get there, like we can't, uh, we could, but we, you know, it's not near near us at all. We'll link you up to these places online so you can take a look at them yourself. And the National Portrait Gallery has a special exhibit that closes on January 5th of this year. Well, next year. It closes January 5th, 2014. If you're listening to this in time and you're in London, hire yourself down there. It was an interesting period in Elizabethan times when immigrant artists coming in, meeting with the newly wealthier middle classes meant that what you're seeing is not only the nobility getting their portraits taken, as in days of yore, but you've got butchers. You've got clockmakers. You have all kinds of Elizabeth's subjects and 
a wonderful curator has brought these all together in one exhibition. So you can see them all at the same time. There's so much out there that connects with her. So many different things that went through arts and military and economics. I mean, there's so many elements that made up her life and her reign. There's a lot. But um, there is TudorHistory.org. We've suggested it before, and it's a great place for kids to go and read just a quick introductory and for, for kids to learn a little bit more about Elizabeth. There is a, this is a small one, and she follows us on, um, and we follow her on Twitter. It's beingbest.blogspot.com. She's a museum interpreter, and she portrays Elizabeth in replica clothing. Hmm. So it's kind of, it's a real, it's a nice little educational site. It's, I would totally recommend that. And the elizabethfiles.com, which is a sister site to the Anne Boleyn Files, also has lots of information. There's also the Tudor Tutor, which my eight-year-old can't believe is real. He goes, there's a place called the Tudor, and he cracks up every time. But you and I are old enough to know that it's Tudor Tutor. <laughs> she writes about all aspects of Tudor culture. So uh, hit her blog at the Tudor Tutor. <laughs> <laughs> See, you can't even say it. Out of control. No, she's a very good resource. Don't let our laughter dismay yes. you. No, it's not been, at all. It's been a long morning. The Biography Channel has a very good miniature biography of Queen Elizabeth I on their website at bio.com. Okay, let's talk movies. Um, speaking of Tudor Tudor, I do, I follow her on Facebook, and there was a, quite a discussion talking about who made the best Elizabeth. I can tell you who I think, but I know she's going to disagree with me. Well, no, I don't, she didn't, she offered it as a question to anyone mm. that was following her, and I mean, I just skimmed it, it was very long, but it really, it was divided. It was a group divided. Who do you think? Okay, so, I, just boiling down my decision to two movies. You've got, well, let's call it three, but the series Elizabeth and Elizabeth the Golden Age with Kate Blanchett versus the later 2005 Helen Mirren. Okay, so here's my viewpoint. People freak out about the historical inaccuracies of the Kate Blanchett movies. But again, I say, this one will suck you in. It will humanize the main personages. Kate Blanchett dominates, dominates this role. I'm mm -hmm. telling you what. And then... Then, if you're excited and intrigued and want to learn more, do. If people aren't motivated, well, at least they have a base. What would they have had anyway? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, just remember that Dudley was not the bad guy. Don't be all mad at Dudley. That's true. After this movie, because that part was, like, dramatic, etc. Good. But don't go away thinking Dudley was a piece of work or whatever. Because um, it's not true. Now, Helen Mirren's vastly superior with regard to historical accuracy, but suffers in production value. That's... Seriously, some of it looks like they shot it on a stage at a high school. <laughs> so you take your choice. Yep. I prefer production values. I'm a sucker for packaging. And I always have been, and I make no bones about it. And those Elizabeth, the Golden Age movies. Okay. Although heavy-handed on the Virgin Mary, the Virgin Mother stuff. Yeah. I know. I know. All done with that. Aside from that, I vote that way. So you vote Kate. Oh, yeah. You actually left out um, two that were... Two others that were also thrown out. No, I know. I know. Oh, okay. Those are my, your those top, are two. my top Okay. Two. So I'll, th I'll, I'll throw those out. There's the um, 2005 Masterpiece Theater min miniseries with Anne-Marie Duff, who covers her whole reign. That's the problem with, like, the Helen Mirren and then also 
the Glenda Jackson, Elizabeth R. Glenda Jackson was terrifying looking. I know. I, <laughs> I'm just telling you. The, Glenda Jackson was getting some votes on this, and I was like, oh, I cannot tell you how many times, because we've wanted to do Elizabeth for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So we keep starting to research her, and then we get pulled away by something else. So how many times I have tried to watch this series. It is 540 minutes. It is a four-disc set. I have taken some seriously awesome naps because of Glenda Jackson. So I'm going to have to say that that doesn't cover. But I really liked Anne-Marie Duff. I thought she covered Elizabeth um, fairly accurately. And because she could cover the whole age range, I thought that gave her a lot more points in my book. So anyway, we will put up pictures of each of those so that you know where which ones to get from your library. And I will tell you, just in the interest of Netflix, probably you're going to get the Kate Blanchett ones more easily. Yeah. Exactly. I had to get the other ones from from the library. And actually, you know, we never talked about this. Elizabeth's signature, the Elizabeth R, Mm -hmm. that you see in her signature, it stands for Regina, which means queen in Latin. No, there is people who don't know this. Well, there you go. Now you know. I know. Now you know. And not Regina from Once Upon a Time, the TV show, who is the evil queen. Beacon of TV, you know, there are two episodes of Doctor Who that have... Queen Elizabeth in them. Yay! The first Doctor had one, if you were interested in watching the black and white versions. Versions. (laughs) If you are, in fact, interested in watching the black and white versions, you may want to choose another channel. (laughs) On Netflix, um, the the 10th Doctor, David Tennant, who arguably is the greatest Doctor ever, had the Shakespeare Code episode with Elizabeth I in it, which was kind of cool. Well, I have a few things on YouTube that you cannot miss. Let's start with my favorite, The Super Sizers Go. We've talked about it before, even with the other tutors podcast. Uh, Elizabethan. The food, they cover extensively. And a little bit of the customs, too. Can't recommend that highly enough. I know. I love that show. Also, The Time Traveler's Guide to Elizabethan England. This is Ian Mortimer from the BBC. It's on YouTube for freezies. It's three parts. There's the poor, the rich, and the, the middle-in. I forget how they put the last one. But it's on three hours. Honestly, if your device lets you caper around, I would say you don't even have to watch the video. The actual video portion adds nothing to the content, so listening to it is just fine. You're not going to miss a thing Hmm. by not seeing him walk around with his hat. No. That's really all that happens. He walks around with his hat and uh, has good information. Do you have horrible histories? I do. My favorite two. Can I please say that? Oh, please do. Terrible Tudor toilets and sugar paste toothpaste. (laughs) You can fall into um, Elizabeth and Tudor horrible histories for a very, very long time. And the kids love them. These are great. These are great. If you haven't ever looked, go to YouTube right now. Yeah, we talked a little bit about her love of sugar and how that didn't do such awesome things to her teeth. And so that's what one of these makes fun of. I like the one, it was um, Elizabeth the First Christmas. And she was presented with things that were actually introduced during her reign, including the first wrist clock. It's funny that it didn't work so awesomely no. either, but it looked cool. And you know what's more important? No. You've got lackeys to tell you what time it is. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Who cares? And then also, Elizabeth the Virgin Queen, our old friend David Starkey, who I'm sure we can all agree is a reliable source, has this also on YouTube. I'm sure you could find it uh, online elsewhere, but it is on, you know, YouTube since you're there in parts. 
So books. You want to talk? I know. Yeah, as to books, <sighs> man, you could go on and on and on and on. No kidding. I don't even know if I would say, okay, I would say in no particular order, just look for David Starkey. Just look for Allison Weir. I know some people don't value her opinion, but you know what? Just make your own opinion is what I'm saying. The Tudor Tutor has an excellent list of resources um, book-wise that I think we're just not going to spend too much time expanding upon now. I am going to recommend just one book because it is full of pictures. Full of pictures. It's called In Public and in Private, Elizabeth One and Her World by Susan Watkins. It's full of photographs. It's full of photographs of places, of portraits, of all of the personages that appear in these stories. It covers a lot of architecture, which we didn't do necessarily. It's hard to cover architecture on an audio podcast anyway, but it does cover all the palaces and all of the country houses that were built to accommodate her, etc. So that's one to go to for that kind of resource. Also, there's a book called Elizabeth and Lester. We referred to it earlier. If you want to go in depth into that detail, I'm totally going to take this opportunity to um, pimp our friend Lisa's book because Anne Boleyn is covered in the first book. These are great. It's a beginning of a series. It's just starting to come out. The first one's out now. It's by our friend Lisa Graves, who is an illustrator and runs the History Witch blog, and she's coming out with a series of books. Her very first book looks at women that were accused of being witches or of sorcery or mysticism or something, anything, and Anne Boleyn is covered in that particular book. So I can slip her in there and tell you that you should really go ahead and get this for your kids. It's, it's, it's made for children. Great illustrations and real quick introductions to some people that they might not ever have heard of. So that's it for Elizabeth. Was she intrepid or cautious? Fickle or wise? Great or just lucky? She has been the subject of books, plays, movies, TV series, operas. She has engendered an obsessive fan base that began in her own lifetime. She is magical and controversial and an icon. And let's leave you with words from Elizabeth herself from the Golden Speech. To be a king and wear a crown is a thing more glorious to them that see it than it is pleasant to them that bear it. And though you have had and may have many princes more mighty and wise sitting in this seat, yet you never had nor shall have any that will be more careful and loving. The end. Thanks for listening. Bye! For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. Listen to us on Stitcher, the super fabulous radio app of tomorrow. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. <laughs>